This week's episode is brought to you by my upcoming book, The Influencer Economy, How Creators Thrive and Share Their Work for Success in the Modern Day. If you'd like more information about the book's pre-order, hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com. In this book, I profile maker, creator, entrepreneurs like Bill Simmons, Chris Hartwick and Nerdist, Mark Marin, and other visionaries reverse engineering their careers for all of us to learn with a framework for business people to launch a business idea. Hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com if you'd like a free chapter. Welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. Happy you're here for episode 81. My guest this week is entertainment writer Jen Yamato. Jen covers entertainment for the Daily Beast based in Los Angeles, and she has served as editor and reporter at Deadline Hollywood, Movie Line, and Rotten Tomatoes. I've become obsessed with the show Making a Murderer, a 10-episode series on Netflix. Jen is one of the best writers online covering Making a Murderer on the Daily Beast, so I had to have her on the podcast. Well, I think going into the holiday break, right, because if we remember Making a Murderer has only been out, it's only been in our lives for less than a month now, which is crazy. Um, So there was a lot of hype going into it, but people... People didn't really know what it would be. It was it was sort of promoted as the next serial, the next whodunit that would that would captivate your your attention. Um, but I think until I, st- I I didn't really understand how much I would be hooked and why until I started really watching the show. And here Jen details the obsession around the show. You know, there's this man in Wisconsin. You've never heard of him. He went to prison for 18 years for a crime he didn't commit, gets out, starts rebuilding his life, files a, a massive lawsuit against the uh, the authorities who wrongfully imprisoned him, and then is hit with a crazy murder charge. Yeah, so he's, he's essentially suing them for $36 million, and mm-hmm. he's going after this small uh, town in Wisconsin that most likely doesn't have that much money. They don't have the resources... And then you look back in these old grainy footage tapes of the depositions that were happening through that civil lawsuit for the 30 million plus mark. And right, I think it was a couple days before he or after he was arrested, two key um, witnesses were about to be deposed. So what do you think about those types of coincidences that this lawsuit was going on? And then- mm-hmm. I think um, obviously there are a great many points of 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 either extreme coincidence or you know something else and those question marks are the the things that that i think have captured our curiosity about the entire the entire story you know like um you like to think that the american judicial criminal justice system works in a way <clears throat> where where evidence can't be planted where there can't be some agenda some small town agenda against uh, a very you know like a an economically disadvantaged individual um where the entire system seems to be against him you'd like to think that the the system works in a way and has you know obviously for 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 ever since uh 
ever since it was created. But the the thing about the Stephen Avery story is that there are, and you know, if you talk to Dean Strang, his one of his defense attorneys, these sorts of stories happen all the time and we don't hear about them. So it's just, this is an extraordinary case where there are just too many questions to, to let the story just go and to, 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 to not wonder if our system is broken. So based on like the work you've done and like, how were you able to transition your obsession into your work and getting, you know, Dean Strang on the line and, and you've done a great job covering. I feel like if I could get paid to do what you were doing here, I know it takes a lot of work. I would love it. <laughs> the amount of research I'm doing is it's great because you can just follow along and it's this real life online community that's, that's grown around it. Like what's that, what's that like to you as a, as a journalist? Oh, I think it's wonderful. You know, Reddit immediately, as soon as, 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 the series or the documentary came out um, in December, Reddit was on it. They were internet sleuthing. They were sharing, you know, possible evidence. They were comparing notes. And because of that, because of internet culture and and what's available to us, it's made everybody into amateur detectives, which I think is a really great thing. And also a really scary thing in that, in that, um, I spoke with, first, I spoke with the filmmakers. I wanted to know, you know, that was the first interview that I did related to making a murder. I wanted to know what it was like to to make a, a film like this. They were first-time directors, essentially, who had become interested in the Stephen Avery case after reading about it, you know, as a as a criminal case. And they moved, they picked up, they moved to Wisconsin, essentially. Who were they before? In New York. They were New York uh, film grad students. So they they dedicated really many, many years of their their lives to documenting what was happening to Stephen Avery. But not, it was interesting, is they they will say that they um, did it, to document the the process of what it's like to be accused in America, not so much to, or not at all, in fact, to find out who really killed Teresa Hallback, you know, and those two very, you know, if you, those two very different impulses, uh, which are either to figure out who really killed her, or to figure out if Stephen Avery um, got the the justice and the due process that he deserved those are two very very different impulses and i think those are also the the two ways that people are reacting to the film yeah what i love about this is you know with serial and now making a murder and other you know real life shows that cover true crime that people catch up and they can binge and they can watch it and so now that i watched it like in the first week and in three days and I have friends now that are catching up. And the first question they ask is, is he guilty or innocent? But in the end, that's not really what the filmmakers were after, nor what we're as a culture supposed to decide because it's, was he guilty enough without a reasonable doubt to have committed this crime? Right. Exactly right. So do you think in your mind, I mean, what's your stance? Like as a journalist, are you taking an opinion 
or are you trying to present facts that we can all make our own decisions off of? Well, I mean, ultimately, it's not for any of us to decide, right? Um, I think the important takeaway is that we are aware of how the judicial system works, and we are aware that sometimes it doesn't work. Um, that we take note of potential injustices done to any individuals that we do not know personally, and that we take an interest in how our legal system operates and treats other citizens. That, to me, is the the important takeaway. More important than, you know, figuring out if somebody else killed Teresa Hallback or, or, or you know, even more important than if, seeing if Stephen Avery is released from jail or is somehow exonerated or gets another trial or something like that. What's important, I think, is that making a murder has awakened an interest, and it's a morally grounded interest in viewers. And, and this is mass entertainment, essentially, right? It's, it's the, the thing of the zeitgeist that everybody's talking about right now. That we probably won't be talking about it so much in a year, you know? Um, and I would hope that people only Reddit. will talk about it. <laughs> Reddit. will talk about it forever <laughs> and bless them for that. But you know, the, 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 the kinds of questions that we're asking because we don't know the answers are, I think what will be lasting and, and really significant about making a murder. And you're talking about the media implications of, you know, the communities online together sleuthing. What about media during the trial? And talk about getting a fair trial or with justice being properly dispersed on the case. Mm-hmm. When all the media in – I mean I thought that was a fascinating element of the film where that was just must – it was a like the OJ trial. It's the only thing I can think of in comparison for a local community – where the room of press was standing room only people like with Brendan Dassey, when he came forward with that confession, like what did you think about how the prosecution, you know, dis- disseminated information to the media about things that weren't even proven yet or presented in court? Right. Well, I think watching making a murder, you really, you really start to think about how, how criminals or accused criminals are presented in the media and when, and if that, you know, like it, it's interesting. I, when I spoke with Dean Strang, he, he spoke about this. And Dean is the Dean Strang the is trial. Dean Strang's the, the, uh, very impassioned lawyer who represents with his co-counsel, Jerry Buting represents Stephen Avery at his murder trial. And Dean Strang's, you know, the internet's boyfriend now. He's everybody's favorite dad crush. Everyone has had a crush on him, you know, my, yes. myself included. <laughs> uh, with good reason, I think, you know, um, he he's he's awakened some 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 something in us, and it's really fun uh, to indulge in this sort of like fan club adoration of somebody who's who's very eloquent and who's very obviously passionate about. Um, justice uh, but he uh, told me something really interesting about his relationship or his outlook on the media and its role in legal proceedings and it's that 
it's that, uh, you know, obviously we all want a free press. I certainly want to have free reign over what I'm able to, to report on. Um, but in the case of Stephen Avery, the district attorney, uh, Ken Kratz gave a, a very incendiary early press conference detailing his theory about, about what happened to Teresa Hallback that I think the film argues very persuasively had a huge impact on the potential jury pool, not just in Manitowoc County, but in the surrounding counties. And I'm sure everybody in Wisconsin heard about that at the time. It was very sensational. It went national. Um, you know, we talked about Nancy Grace because Nancy Grace recently had Stephen Avery's ex-fiance on her show. Uh, but Nancy Grace and, and pundits like that do the same thing about any sensational murder case or crazy crime these days. We hear about these very small stories that that shock us with the severity of their crime. And it's hard to avoid. It's harder and harder to avoid hearing about that and, and making some judgment about what happened, especially when somebody has been identified and accused of committing that crime. So Strang um, actually, he, he gave me a really interesting example. And he said, how is Bill Cosby going to be presumed innocent months from now when he goes to trial? Right. Doesn't even Bill Cosby deserve to have a fair trial judged by a, a, a jury that is untainted by by some sort of prejudgment about his guilt or innocence. Well, yeah, it's like media and the news and especially cable TV and in that trial, local TV and local news is entertainment to some degree and content. And what I found remarkable about like, you know, Dassey's confession and then uh, Ken, the prosecutor presenting this horrific crime at, at that stage, when you're planning that thought into potential jurors, the judge who I've read is a uh, is an elected official who presided over the trial, and so he has to stay electable for the next election as a, as a court judge. Like at that point, if you're a jury, it's really hard for you after you hear this horrific thing that happened to this woman in a you know in a trailer park with these two guys that have CD pass in the images of of the prosecution. It, it seems almost like an insurmountable. Uh, you know, failure that you can't get a fair trial based on getting tried in the court of media ahead of time. Right. And yet in making a murder, I think the one of the, the greatest, very subtle things that the filmmakers do to even depict the, the local media in a balanced way is they show all these hilarious sometimes reaction shots of the courtroom reporters reacting to the district attorney's crazy stories and uh, or crazy sounding stories, these very sensational theories. They, they question him in the ways that we at home watching would like to question him. And they at least fill in for the audience some sort of skepticism of, of the uh, elements of the, the trial that, raised eyebrows. And I, I think 
you know, that's an interesting balance to strike when you're depicting a media that you're also saying contributed to um, the sensationalizing of this trial. It was a lot of their faces were like Jim from The Office or Pam. Yeah. Where they look at these reaction shots and like Michael Mm -hmm. just really said that. Like, that's what she said. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. dumbfounded. Um, So uh, we're going to wrap this up, but I, without, you know, with having you on the line and, and the depths that you've written about this. Um, this that we talk about the evidence and the key that was found a time after through like six or seven searches at Stephen Avery's in his trailer, um, the car that they just miraculously found randomly on the, a lot of what looked like hundreds of hundreds of, of cars, um, Stephen's blood that was planted there. That I, I I'm totally speaking from <laughs> my own opinion. That's, I see how I see you're you're a. Uh... Your opinion on the matter. So what's – but th- th- sure. the fact that I even have doubts, you know, it shows the filmmakers did a great job in, in you know, telling a story that's compelling. But, but moreover, like what did you think about the evidence that was, that was submitted and do you think that justice was served and that there's, you know, a reasonable doubt that was, you know, that he could have not done this? Right. Well, I, I honestly can't say if justice was served. I have my doubts, but I also am very aware that I did not see every piece of evidence presented. I was not one of the jurors who heard every argument and had to deliberate. We don't we don't really know what their their deliberations were about, aside from the the um, sort of late game juror change. The the fact that some of or a couple of the jurors were had some sorts of ties to Manitowoc County authorities. But the thing is, uh, it, it's so easy to watch making a murder and be very outraged and be very sure that Stephen Avery did not get a fair shake, especially uh, more, more so to feel that Brendan Dassey, his nephew was somehow railroaded. You watch, for example, the footage of Brendan Dassey giving, basically giving his confession to investigators or um, even drawing that picture, you know, at the, at the prodding of his own lawyer's investigator. And I thought that guy was a, a prosecutor at first. I didn't, you know? Yeah. I, the, oh, Michael Kelly. Yeah. Michael Kelly. Saying? Until mm-hmm. they re-aired it in like a later episode. I f- was, I was like, Oh wait, I was, I think I was tired. I'd watched like four episodes. Mm-hmm. But but the tone of his work was completely not what you would think a defense attorney would would bring in someone as an expert to help his case. Oh, I would certainly not want my attorney to bring somebody like in that uh, that like that in to help me. Uh, but you know, like I, I think watching how all of this shook out in the the bits and pieces that we get, we're immediately naturally emotionally invested and outraged. But I think it's important to realize that we don't know everything. We don't know even what sort of evidence was presented. We don't, like, in terms of everything, we don't know completely. We we don't know completely um, the evidence that was um, left out. Who knows? I mean, I, there are so many lists, you know, and stories online now of the evidence, the crucial evidence that was left out of making a murder that will convince you definitively of one opinion or another. Um, but 
at a certain point, I think it becomes too easy to jump to one conclusion or another. And um, I look forward, I hope, that some new crucial piece of evidence or crucial you know, like revelation comes out that that gives it some sort of definitive direction. But now it's like everybody's scrutinizing um, um, every single tiny, minute bit of evidence, and um, uh, you know that you're convinced is meaningful. And I, I think there's a little bit of that that's getting out of hand. So, in the end, do you think that um, in six months we'll? still be talking about this if nothing comes up with conclusive evidence to help shape the the verdict or opportunity for re- retrial either way? I think if something uh, uh, um, something concrete comes up, obviously we'll keep talking about it. Um, I don't know that we will keep devouring making a murder specifically so much six months from now. I think, um, for example, you know, the, the Jody Stokowski revelation from yesterday it was a huge, huge interview where she basically said now she's convinced or she was convinced then she said that Stephen Avery was guilty because she, her, she just knew it in her gut. And she was lying to the filmmakers when she when she uh, acted support supportive of him. You know, that was a huge bombshell to drop. But does it actually have any implication on the his actual appeal? I don't think so. Yeah, she said she said he was abusive to her, and and she ate rat poison at one point to like become sick to get out of the house, and mm-hmm. it's an awful story. I mean, it sounds terrible. Truly terrible, absolutely. And you know, a lot of people in uh, on my social media um, feeds have really uh, zeroed in on the very early um, incident in w- involving the cat, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, or he, like, the cat. Or he tortured. Throwing a cat over a fire, and therefore so many people are convinced that he must be a killer. But, I mean, if you really think about that, it doesn't tell you anything about the specific crime for which he was charged and convicted. Um, it tells you maybe something about what you think his character is like. That is also what the Jody Stokowski... Um, revelation in theory tells you, but she's also a, a character witness who, who changed her story. Can we trust her? I don't, or at least can we trust what she says now? Can we trust what she said then? It's just, I think, you know, I think Avery's attorneys are, are looking for, you know, new evidence or looking for new scientific developments that can help them, you know, uh, uh, re-examine some of the physical evidence, it seems. Um, but unless something concrete comes out, you know, in the next short while, I'm not sure that we will still be as obsessed with this as we are now. Yeah, totally. And are you, uh, yeah, thank you. This is great. Uh <laughs> Thanks again for Jen to come on the show. If you'd like to hear any more of the episodes, go to InfluencerEconomy.com for all the archives. Also check out Jen on Twitter at Jen Yamato and find her all her writing at TheDailyBeast.com. 
excited to say the book I handed in, uh, the Influencer Economy book, 65,000 words to an editor last week. Hopefully, we'll have the pre-sale up on Amazon early February and the book coming out very soon to an Amazon store near you. Thanks again for checking out the show. Hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com and head over to Duke Zebert's for some chicken in the pot. Mm-hmm.